Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter this morning as we continue our study there, as we go line upon line, precept upon precept. Um, we're going to begin talking about uh, this letter again, uh, 1 Peter, where Peter is writing to these folks that have been exiled from their land. Now, this is not the exile we read about in the Old Testament where uh, the Jews had been disobedient. They'd rejected God's law by in part. God sends them for a time out. He says, you know what? You want to worship idols? I'm going to send you to a foreign land that's full of idols, and you're going to get them so much until they come out your ears and your teeth, and you're so sick of idol worship. And one of the things you can notice about the people of Israel is once they came back from exile, and they'd experienced what it's like to live in a land that's completely polluted with idol worship, they came back and they were zealous for only one God. And to the point that one of the main reasons they killed Jesus is because he came and claimed to be God. And they were like, absolutely not. That's blasphemous. And so they went to the extreme opposite and weren't sensitive to the spirit of the Lord. But all that to say that now that the New Testament church has begun around A.D. 64, which was about six years before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, Christianity is growing. It's been birthed, and there's this boom. All of a sudden, there's believers everywhere. Uh, one at time, in, for, for instance, that we have in the Gospels and then in Acts, is when Peter proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ on the southern steps of the temple. And when he does this, there's this like uh, a mighty wind of the Spirit, if you will, that's pouring out, and there's 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 new Christian believers. And so while they're under the thumb of Rome, there's still people being born again, not of the water, but of the Spirit. And as they're born of the Spirit, they go are sent forth with the Spirit of God. Now, many Christians say, well, I don't know how to live as a Christian because I don't really know much about the Bible. These believers were not carrying around the Bible that you and I have today. There was letters written to the churches. There was uh, correspondence going between disciples and apostles. There was things being proclaimed in large gatherings. That's how they would learn the Word of God. They were still reading the Old Testament and seeing Jesus being the fulfillment of all these prophecies. They were still reading the Pentateuch and seeing that, like I read this morning in, uh, I think it was Leviticus, about the offering that was made for guilt and how the offering had to be made of an animal that was without spot and without blemish, which we'll read about today in 1 Peter. And so all that to say that there's believers that are filled with the Spirit of God, and once things get going in Acts chapter 2, we have this pod of believers that are in their holy huddle. They're living together daily. They're serving one another. They're sharing. If somebody's got extra, they're sharing it with those that have nothing. And those that have nothing have something to offer those that have plenty. And so they're able to mutually encourage one another, but they still live in a world that is tainted by sin, and they live under a government structure that is not for Jesus. It's for itself. Caesar was to be worshiped as God himself. And so I wanted to give you a little bit more of the context that their Christianity had to be lived out in, and hopefully you'll see some of the parallels. But where they lived, uh, the context of the, where they lived means everything, right? We don't get to live our Christian faith out in a vacuum. We don't get to stay at church all week and just act like everything's fine outside of the church. We've been given this faith to live outside of the church among people that don't have the same 
ideas as we do, don't have the same faith, don't have the same Savior. And so Rome, at the time of Peter writing this letter, was totally fine with Christianity because they saw it as another division or a sect of Judaism, which was a government-okayed, sanctioned religion. They were allowed to practice Judaism underneath Roman control. Now, they weren't allowed to, uh, they weren't allowed to uh, exhibit uh, corporal punishment. They couldn't actually punish anybody. Um, they couldn't kill anybody for breaking their laws. They'd have that taken from the Romans. But they were still able to practice their religion. Um, so as long as Christianity was seen as just a division or a sanction or a, a <laughs> what is it called when a church is, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. You know, you got Baptists, you got <laughs> denominations. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. So <laughs> you ever guys, you ever, ever just forget a word and you're like, I know that word. I've said it a million times. That's the one. So in those divisions, in those denominations, they're just seeing this as a denomination of Judaism. Okay, totally fine. But here's the deal. The godless are always okay with your religion, even as a believer, as long as it doesn't impact the rest of your life. Many of your families are fine with you being a Christian. Just don't push it on me. A religion that has no teeth is, is no threat to anybody. And even the Romans were totally fine with religion. If you look at Paul showing up in Acts, he shows up there in Rome. He shows up in these Roman uh, cities, and he notices that in Athens, there's, they got a plethora of gods. And if you come along to Athens and you say, hey, I got this other god to worship, they're like, bring it on in. Build a statue. Let's worship that one too. Let's cover our bases. But Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to me except through my son Jesus. He's the only way to come to the Father. And so it's very uh, exclusive. And our culture loves inclusivity. Everybody gets to come. So, but Peter wrote around AD 64 when there was a great fire in Rome. Now, if you don't know the history, Caesar Nero had actually started blaming the Christians for this fire. And many believed that the fire was actually caused by his people burning down a bunch of buildings so he could expand his palace walls. And so when it went south and a wind picked up and more got burned that was originally planned, he goes, well, it's the Christians' fault because they were already looked down upon. They were already not liked very much by the... Okay, so let's take advantage of this group of people that nobody likes and just go, well, they did it. I think Paul did it, is what he said. And because of that, a persecution arose like nothing before. So they believed to be caused by Nero trying to expand his palace, and Nero blamed it on the Christians, which was easy to do. He needed a scapegoat for something that he had done. And it's always easy to blame somebody that won't defend themselves. And the Christians, they weren't an army. They weren't a political power. They were just this group of people that trusted Jesus, and most of them didn't even have weapons. And so Nero blamed the Christians, and, and it was easy to do because he called them cannibals. He called them cannibals because their very leader, Jesus, had said to a big, large crowd, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. Now that sounds like cannibalism if you don't understand that it was symbolism. 
He wasn't saying literally eat my flesh, literally drink my blood, because if you read the Old Testament, they were not to eat anything with the blood in it. So what was he saying? What was the practice of communion that he set forth in the New Testament? But from the eyes of the world, they go, wow, that's true. Jesus did say that. They are eating people. That's disgusting. These people are nuts. And then number two, Christ, because of what he taught and because of the way that he lived, he elevated in the lives of those that follow him, the husband and wife, the wife more than the husband, to equal status. So wives are no longer property to those who believe in Jesus. Uh, wives are, now have a say in the marriage. And wives and husbands are actually to submit to one another. Now, if you've ever heard an old school Christian guy, he's always saying, my wife needs to submit, the Bible says so. And the wives are always bitter because they're like, yeah, but aren't you supposed to love me like Christ loved the church? And so neither one of them do that for each other because the other one's not doing their part. But Jesus never said, make sure your husband does this and make sure your wife does this. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord with no conditions. And husbands, submit to your wives as the weaker vessel, treating them kindly and and gently. And so it totally blows up the Roman idea of what a marriage should look like, which was a Roman man would own his wife, essentially, and basically get to tell her what to do, and she had no say in it. Now, for men, that might sound good. I don't know if I would like that. Because it, it sounds good, but you never have a wife that actually just loves you because she wants to. You don't know if she is or not because you're, she's, she has to. And that's not love. That's, that's essentially what rape is. It's, it's not enjoyable. It's, it's something that's forced, and you never know if the other person loves you back. And so Christ elevated the wife to equal status with the husband in home, in society, where husbands were owners or direct authorities over their wives. And then on top of that, outside of the home, Christ and his teachings elevate slaves to equal with their masters. Now, he never taught in the New Testament that you cannot have slaves. It never was taught in the Old Testament. That there were times where there was financial obligations and you would own a person, but he said, slaves, obey your masters in the Lord. Worship God in the way that you serve your master. And then he said, masters, fear God. Treat your slaves wisely. Treat them kindly. And in so doing, sometimes they would win their slaves to the love of the Lord. And so in a culture that was one-third at the very minimum, I think that's a conservative estimate, one-third of them were slaves, that changes their whole culture and the way that it flows. And so with that kind of impact, just this isn't preaching This isn't changing politics. This is what's changing in the human hearts that affects human relationships that makes Roman society look totally different if there's enough Christians just simply being obedient in their relationships with other humans. And so with that happening, Christian beliefs threatened the Roman cultured way of life. They were no longer at liberty to be as free to just own people and treat them however they wanted to get their will done on earth. And it was starting to throw a wrench in their plans. And so they were looking at, the the Christians were looked at as a people who were keeping mankind from progressing. And I have been told within the last year by two people, Christians are what's wrong with America today. 
because we are keep, they look at us as people that are keeping society from evolving to what it's meant to be. Ironically, they just don't know Jesus. Because if they knew Jesus and his care for people, our society would progress and be more fulfilling. And peace would come sooner if we would all surrender to the, the lordship of Jesus Christ rather than the lordship of whoever is in front of us at the time. And so because of this, and in this persecution, Rome's response to Christians became this. Persecution and, uh, of Christians became standard policy. It was governmentally regulated. It was something that they were like, go for it. Shut them down. Uh, they started imprisoning Christians. They started torturing them. They would put them in the games. They would let lions eat them because of their criminal status, because of burning down pieces of Rome. And they would even torture them and execution of Christian men, Christian women, and their children as enemies of the state. So because of their living for the kingdom, they became fugitives, essentially. They became with the status that we would have of murderers, uh, people that needed to be imprisoned and punished. So this is the context that Peter's writing this. And if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, he says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by trials. So their trials weren't, I can't get up in the morning for my job, I'm too tired. Their trials weren't, I owe a bunch of money to pay for my house. Their trial was, they could be executed legally at any point, for being an outspoken believer and a follower of Jesus. That's a trial. So the question becomes, in times of persecution like that, do you believe what you say you believe, and are you willing to die for it? And that's what separates the goats from the sheep. That's what separates the pretenders from the contenders. I believe that if we experience this kind of persecution, the church would shrink, but it would be purified, because only the people that actually believed in Jesus and actually had been saved by the blood of the Lamb and were thankful for it, would stick around. Only those people. It would purify the bride of Christ. We would no longer have people that were prosperity teachers because they would give up very quickly because their lifestyle would be threatened. And so in this context, Peter writes to them to teach believers to find security in their God not in their circumstances. We've studied that for the last two weeks. But I want to read through the first part of the chapter so we stay in context. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you, and peace be multiplied. Imagine that this is your context. Grace sounds great. I need grace to live through these circumstances, but peace, peace doesn't make sense. Peace that doesn't come from understanding. Uh, Lord, I believe that you love me. I believe that you saved me, but I don't understand why you're allowing all these treacherous things to happen to me and should change my family dynamic and even to move me out of my country and send me to foreign lands where I don't know anybody. And I'm being persecuted because I trust you. 
And, and Jesus promised his followers that they would experience persecution. That's a Bible promise that most people don't have in their Bible promise book. Or sewn on a pillow. Or hanging in their dining room with some sort of Hobby Lobby deal. It's just not. In this life, you will experience persecution. A servant is no greater than his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Oh, thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. But the reality is that's when our light shines through. When we experience that kind of persecution and we say, even if he doesn't save me, I'm going to trust him anyway. So he reminds them in the first 12 verses of this chapter, God chose you. He picked you. According to his foreknowledge, he chose you to be called by his name, to be like Christ, to be a Christian. He set you apart for a holy purpose. Everything that's happening in your life, God knows about it, and he has set you apart. He's purifying your life for a purpose. And though you may not know exactly what that purpose is, it's a good purpose, and he's going to be glorified in you. God has begotten you, He's literally brought you to life. He's birthed you to a living hope. So the worst thing that man can do is take your life. Guess what? It can't stop your living hope because just as Jesus raised from the dead, he was the first fruits. You're going to be a follower of his, even from the grave. He's proven his power by raising Jesus from the dead. Even there are believers that proclaim Jesus rose from the dead. But there were people like Josephus that were eyewitnesses or, or have heard testimony that Jesus practically wrote. It's a historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And so he's proven his power to be able to raise our lives too. And he promises us, you and I, who believe in Jesus now, an inheritance to those who trust him all the way home. That we must, we must endure all the way until we arrive where our final destination is in his presence. And he promises to be with us and sustain us all the way home. Those that God saves, he keeps. No one can take them from my hand. And so as we look at those things, that's what Peter's telling them because they need to be reminded because it doesn't feel like those things are true. Faith is not feeling. Stop living your life by your feelings. Live by faith, not by sight. So, Peter's response, there should be another one in here. Oh, Rome's response was persecution. Peter's response was to remind them who saved them. I'm losing myself in my slides here. Okay, so you're saved. Verse 13, he goes on to say, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revealing of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct." Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And so he says, you're saved, therefore gird up your mind. Now, this is soldier talk. This is get ready talk. This is be vigilant talk. 
This is like if you're getting ready to go into a battle. Christians, we're not living in a playground. We're living in a battlefield. Everything that you see in our culture is meant to erode away your trust in a God who you cannot see with things that you can see, taste, touch, smell, etc. He says, gird up your, the loins of your mind. Now, to us, that sounds creepy. I don't know. Why are we talking about loins? And what does it mean to gird myself? Well, in that time, they would wear a tunic. And that tunic, hopefully you can see on the picture there, is worn by a very manly man. Picture, if you will, Scottish men. Freedom! <laughs> now, we look at it in our culture, we go, put on some jeans, brother. That is a, that's a dress. But to them, this was something that was, it would breathe well. It's like wearing boxers instead of briefs. You know? But for them, they lived their daily lives in tunics. But if you're going to battle... You don't go to battle in a dress or a tunic or whatever you want to call it. Kilts were a little shorter. And if you've ever been to one of those Celtic festivals, you'd wish they were longer because if somebody accidentally falls or whatever, it's not good. But for them, they wouldn't just hike them up. The idea was they would take it, they would bunch it up together, they would pull it out front, wrap it underneath, which is kind of like a diaper if you think about it, and then they would wrap it around and then they would tie it not because it was like, but to prepare for battle. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. He doesn't say put on battle gear. He says, prepare for battle in your mind. And in this case, when they would pull this up, look at that last picture on the lower right. He is ready for battle. But you know what else he's ready to do? He's ready to work. He's ready to work for what he knows he needs to do to provide for his family whatever else might need to put on your big boy pants is the idea so our salvation that we've been given is so powerful he said in verse 11 or 12 that angels even are in awe of it they look at it and they just are in wonder look at what god has done for those people why they're in awe they see god and they're like that's awesome and our salvation was also predicted by the old testament prophets but look at this, it was procured not with corruptible things, but with incorruptible things, the very precious blood of Jesus himself. It was procured by Jesus. It was bought, the Son of God. He says, therefore, in light of the, this very fact, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope on God's grace. But I want to point this out. He's saying to them, be who you are. Be okay with who you are in Christ. Rest upon what God has made you into. But then he also says, be ready for action. Be ready to work hard. Be ready to battle hard. And there's a, a parallel passage, if you turn to your left, in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Galatians, Ephesians. Colossians. But in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 1, he says, Be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So then he talks about what it means to be obedient and imitators of God. 
He says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Don't let filthiness or foolish talking or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once, past tense, darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who are sleeping, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So then he says this, See then that you walk circumspectly, or another word translation might be walk wisely, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming or buying back the time because the days are evil. Therefore, he says, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make melody in the heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So I know that that's a lot, but he's saying this is what it looks like to walk circumspectly. So if you turn back to 1 Peter in chapter 1, he says, Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be obedient children. We're called to live differently than the culture that surrounds us. We're called to be different. Now, why were they being persecuted? Because they were different. And Peter's reminding them, you're supposed to be. We're different. We're Christ followers. How many of your families have ever, and maybe they haven't, but I remember growing up, my dad would say, well, we don't do that. We're mingies. We're different. And that's okay. We're distinct from other families. We don't do this, or we do do that. We work hard. We play hard. Whatever your, your family uh, shield might say. But in Christ, we are supposed to be different. And so he tells us how to be different. And the first step is to be obedient as dear children of God. As children, what you'll notice as you raise your children, if you have children of your own or you watch somebody else that has kids, the kids end up being like their parents. Not just in appearance, but they end up doing what their parents do. And sometimes as children, we end up doing what our parents do even though it embarrasses us because we find ourselves saying things that we said, I will never say that to my kids. And then we do and we go, "Uh uh-oh, it happened. But as Christ followers, we should be imitators of our Father in heaven. We should be about the things that he's about. And in this case, he says, children are like their parents. Be holy, for I am holy. It's the same thing that God told them in the Old Testament. Holy means other. God is unlike any other. Holy means different, 
Not weird different, but different for God's holy purposes. Holy means set apart for his holy purposes. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul wrote to his, those that had come to faith under his ministry. He said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So we ought to be able to say to anyone who follows Christ under our under-shepherding, if you will, imitate what I'm doing as I imitate Christ. As I do what Christ does, do it too. Now, unfortunately, many times in the Christian church, we go, well, don't follow me, follow Jesus. But Paul didn't separate those two. But what does it look like to be holy? What does it look like to be set apart? Many of us think of holy and we think of, you know, just wearing some sort of tunic and some sort of like priestly garments. We go in and we just, oh, you know, if you've ever watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you see the monks and... (laughs) I have to digress for a minute. Have you guys watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail? One of my favorite interludes in between scenes is when they're going, Then they take these blocks of whatever and they go, whack! And they hit themselves on the head. That's not holy. That's just weird. It's just, you know, and so many Christians think, like, I need to... I need to go off and be a monk somewhere and separate myself from society and be so apart that nobody even knows I exist. And that is not Christianity. Christianity is meant to be lived among people that don't know Jesus. And it's meant to be lived out loud in front of people, spoken about. Not to be weird, but to be set apart and different. And to the world, you're going to look weird if you obey the simplest of commands. Because guess what? You're going to forgive your enemies. And you're going to bless those who persecute you. And you're going to do things that make no sense to the world. They deserve to be punished. Yep, they do. So did I in Christ. I'm not. So I'm going to show them the same grace I've been shown. But what does it look like to be holy? Well, he gives us a couple of examples. But what I want to point out is if you want to unlock the power of God in your life, Reverence for God's will is number one. Looking at God and reverencing Him, having a holy fear of God that causes you to respect Him and to do what He says. Reverence for God's will followed by compliance to God's word. Reverence for God's will, so you have a desire to get to know it, the the God of the will, but also get to know what He wants done, but also Simply being compliant to what his word teaches. Not trying to explain things away you don't agree with, but instead going, God, I don't fully understand it, but I'm going I'm to do it anyway. And I'm going to trust you that your way is the best. But he says, conducting yourselves, fearing God. Now, I've skipped over. So verse 17, he says, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves... Throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct. Another word there is empty living. This, uh, the empty living that we've inherited from traditions of men or the traditions of our particular uh, family, but with the precious blood of Christ. You're not saved by something that is a good moral standard in your family, but you've been saved by the blood of Jesus that was spilled on your behalf as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, I was listening to my Bible reading today, 
And it talked about the importance, go figure, God met me right where I was, talked about the importance of a, a spotless and blemishless lamb. Now, if you were a Jewish follower of Yahweh and you brought an animal that was, had spots or was blemished, I'm not talking about the color spots or speckles, I'm talking about a congenital defect that has to do with the genes of that animal, not pure breed, but instead having some sort of problem with it because of the way it was born, then it's got a spot. But if you have an animal that's not been well taken care of, and it's been allowed to be chewed on by a coyote, or it's been beat by its owner, and it's got a blemish that's been inherited because of its life, then that animal... You can sacrifice it, you can give it to the Lord, but it doesn't guarantee that your sin is forgiven or that your trespass isn't dealt with because God requires a sin or a spotless and, and, and a lamb without blemish. And so you take this animal in fear and trembling going, I don't know if God's going to accept it because it's not perfect. But what he says is we've not been redeemed with an animal. We've not even been redeemed with a bad animal or a good animal. He said, we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus that is perfect. No spots, no blemishes. And so it's going to be accepted. It has been accepted, proven by God sending us a receipt in his resurrection. And so um, our salvation is guaranteed because of the offering that's been made on our behalf. And it says there in verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Our salvation wasn't plan B or C. That before the foundation of the world, God chose Jesus to be the sacrifice and Jesus willingly said, I'll go. Before we were ever born, before the foundations of the earth were laid, God chose to do it this way. But was manifest or revealed in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. How do we know God the Father? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's a direct representation of the Father. And so we know God because we've seen him in the person of Jesus Christ and by faith in him we believe. So the fear, the healthy respect of God And I have several verses there for you talking about wisdom, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One. And and so in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he said, this is man's all, to know God and to obey Him. And, And so John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus speaking to disciples of the Jews, you know, the Jewish people that knew Yahweh, he said, Why do you say that you love me and yet you don't keep my commandments? And so we worship what we fear. Did you know that? We worship, we give our time, our energy, and our efforts and our thoughts to the things that we fear. So for these people that were persecuted by the Roman government, they were tempted to worship the fear of man versus worshiping God. But God said, if you'll fear me first and foremost then you will please me with your actions and your conduct will be something that will be to the praise and the honor of God. So we're called to live differently. And I wrote for you the same thing that Skip Heitzig said, reverence for God's will followed by compliance to God's word. And so if you continue on there in verse 22, 
He says, since you have purified your souls in obedience to the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, here's what you also need to do during your time here. Not only conduct yourselves in obedience, but he says, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So love one another fervently with a pure heart. So parallel this to our existence in the United States. Right now, politically, we have a president that is pretty pro-Christian, as far as I can tell. He's, he's made lots of strides. But the reality is, the next presidency, or the one after that, could change that. So the reality is, we can't place our hope in who our government has as its leader. We have to rest our hope firmly in the God of our salvation, And while we're doing that, and while we're obeying and looking weird to the world, and perhaps even persecuted for simple obedience to Jesus, we're all in this together. So one thing that we can do that seems simple, seems insignificant, is that we can encourage each other by loving one another fervently, constantly reminding each other, I got your back. I'm praying for you. Do you need help with anything? Not just for practical reasons, but because it's easy to get discouraged when the society you live in is not going, go God. As a matter of fact, they're going, you're holding things back. Your view of what marriage should be really cramps our vibe. You're, you're keeping us from moving on to freedom. And in the meantime, we love them, but we don't condone their sin. And so the reality is we're going to be called bigots. We're going to, at some point, probably threatened with imprisonment, put before the chopping block, if you will. And the reality is, in the middle of that, it's easy to lose heart whether you know you're doing the right thing or not. So what Jesus is telling us here through the pen of Peter is, uh, love one another. And actually, Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 31 through 35, he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. They will actually see Jesus' presence in your interaction with one another and how you treat one another. And so I would submit to you in the climate they, they were living in, where persecution was actually the norm instead of the, the exception, there weren't a whole lot of wars over uh, what denomination you were part of, or man's free will versus God's sovereignty, or whether you're charismatic or you're very conservative. They weren't warring over that. They were lifting each other up and hopefully encouraging one another. And Peter says, if you're not, get over yourselves, love one another. Love one another. If we can't love each other in the Christian church, despite... And now, there are certain things that are close-handed issues. Salvation by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's the only way, he's the only truth, he's the only life. But there are some things we get into arguments with other believers about that are really open-handed issues that we're dying on hills and we're killing people's faith over our hobby horse. Get over it. Jesus said, I'm not giving you a new commandment. Love one another. And if we can't love each other as Christians, despite our differences, despite our preferences, despite our family disagreements, whatever, um, then Christ is not seen in us. And Christ is not glorified in that. 
But the reality is if we will love one another despite the fact that we all come from different backgrounds, different financial things, different home teams, different, uh, you know, let's go Blues versus Bruins, you know, Mizzou versus Kansas City, Blue, you know, the, the reality is whatever your thing is, don't let anything divide you as believers um, because then the world can't see Christ. And um, that said, the question becomes, what are you living for? Are you living for your own kingdom? Or are you living for the glory of man, uh, man or the, the word of God? And so he says here, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, as I quoted earlier, uh, that we've been born again, verse 23, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And if we've been born by the hearing and the believing and the living out of the, the word of God that's been sown into our hearts, the reality is these relationships will last forever. He says, all flesh is as grass and all of the glory of man, the power, the prominence, the glory that we ascribe to ourselves is as the flower of the grass. The grass withers. We'll see that here in August. And the flowers will fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So what he's saying here is these people that are persecuting you, the world system that you're surrounded by right now, just like the, the Christians were early on, but that Peter's writing to, it's going to fade. So I have for you there, that man's glory is temporary. It will fade. The blues are going to win, I hope right? Let's go blues. I'm, I'm all for that. But you know what? Several years later, there's going to be a bunch of blues fans that are going to be like, woohoo, the blues won back in 2019. But there's going to be a lot of people that are like, I don't remember who won the Stanley Cup. They still do hockey? That's always my response. People hate that when I say it. They still have hockey? Because I don't watch it, you know. But what I have things too. But he, rulers and authorities, they'll rise and fall. And, and those, those are the ones that typically oppress. We read that in James. Peers, the people you're surrounded with, the people you go to school with. I don't know most of the people I went to high school with anymore. I'll see them once in a while. But I cared so much about what they cared about when I was in high school. I don't even know half of them anymore, nor do I agree with what they believe. But when I was in high school, what they thought about me meant everything. Now, as adults, are we doing the same thing? Do you have that same kind of foresight into the relationships you have with adults now? Or do you care way too much about what they think? Yours. What about you? What about your glory? I've talked about rulers and authorities' glory. I've talked about your peers' glory that you seek. And the fear of man is a snare, but those who fear the Lord will always be safe. What about yours? What about your glory? Are you living for that? The desire to elevate yourself above others and above God? If that's the case, you're living for something that's going to fade, even if you win, even if your glory transcends those around you, you're going to die. And then, then what, whose glory are you going to leave behind? Your fading glory or God's eternal glory? Are they going to remember what you had to say, what you did to step on others to raise yourself up? Or are they going to remember the God that you proclaimed that is eternal? And are they, you going to leave that legacy behind? God's glory, living for it and proclaiming it will never fade. And so Peter's telling them, look, if you live for God's glory, even if you die, that's something worthy of investing in because that glory never fades. 
It never fades. So, Father, I'm convicted by this, and I know that um, there are many times where I live short-term, and I do fear man. I do fear um, what people think about me. I do fear who's a ruler over me. But if I will simply, instead of living for my own kingdom or trying to advance my own cause or trying to prove myself to others, which are all snares of the devil, they're snares within me, they're lusts within my heart. If I'll live to bring you glory, it'll be worth it in the end. It's a worthy cause to give our lives for. And I know that because Jesus himself, the Son of God, did not call it, he didn't think it uh, wrong to be equal with God, and yet he willingly laid down his um, authority and his power, and he took on human flesh and dwelt among us, and he laid down his life for us so that your glory, Father, would be shown through us. He lived in submission, in submission to your word, in submission to your will, for the glory of God, and it means everlasting life for us, how much more should we be willing to follow his example? Father, we love you. We need you. We need humbled by you. We need to know how to live differently in this world. Lord, help us to be different in all the ways we're supposed to, and help us to be normal in all the ways that we need to to win those around us. But Lord, we want to be normal according to your viewpoint. We want to live for your kingdom now. Lord, we want to see you glorified. We want to see men and women saved because they heard the word of our testimony of how faithful you've been, but we also want them to see the change that you've made in our conduct and how we dwell among our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Father, change our hearts and make us your ambassadors, holy, chosen, kept by your power, and singing your praises all the way home. Lord, we love you, and we, I just pray Lord, continue to disciple us. Continue to highlight the things that need to change. Continue to sow your, the seed of your word into our hearts so that you will be known and famous amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen.